and refresh everyone who languishes. Just a reminder that if you have a prayer request, please fill out the uh, mauve colored slip and we can pray for that during the service and also during the week. Also, we have all these activities going on during the week for your enjoyment and for your edification. Um, please notice they're on the back of your worship folder too, um, of your bulletin. And also too, we have Babel, baby supplies. You can take a little change, um, uh, what do you call it, bottle, and fill it up with your change during the week or just drop your change in on Sunday mornings. And we have those up on our shelving along with our food for the harvest where we collect food for people who don't have any, put them on the shelf, and then Tom takes them down, I believe, at the end of the month. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. At this point, we're going to sing, Jesus, what a friend of sinner for sinners. And Steve, would you read to us the history behind that? Jesus, what a friend for sinners is based on Luke 734, which quotes Jesus as saying, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Further on in the book, Luke 15, 7, in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is quoted as saying, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And Matthew 9, 12, and 13 says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the righteous, to not call the righteous, but sinners. The song was written in 1910 by John Wilbur Chapman, a Presbyterian evangelist. Welcome, everybody. It's join us as we sing Jesus, What a Friend of Sinners. If you like to stand, you can. If not, you want to relax and sit, that's fine, too. Thanks for joining us today. What a blessing it is to have a friend like Jesus to guide us through this crazy world we're living in. We all try to do what's right and we all stumble and fall. So if we confess those sins, Jesus will forgive us. Please join me this morning in this morning's prayer confession. God, you know us and we come before you seeking your forgiveness and mercy. You know the words we spoke this week 
the attitudes in our hearts, and the motives behind the actions we took. As you know, some of it wasn't so great and God-honoring. Forgive our foolish ways and restore unto us the joy of your salvation that guilt has choked. Help us overcome our sinful ways and live like you in all our ways. This we ask in the Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. Our assurance of forgiveness this morning comes from Colossians 1, verses 21 through 22. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind with wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Guidelines for living this morning also comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Bear with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Let's continue our worship as we sing our praise chorus. And if you want, you can stand or you remain seated as we worship the Lord.
Leaning on the Everlasting Arms was written in 1887 by Elisha Hoffman. Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 27 says, There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. He will drive out your enemy before you, saying, Destroy him. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that we can lean on your everlasting arms. And how wonderfully you've provided for us in this life all the blessings that we have for homes, for cars, for family, for health. We also give you praise, Father God, for the church and for the brothers and sisters in Christ. And we also want to thank you, Lord, for the gifts that are given here today. Bless the people as they give them for your honor and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.
thank you today for being present here with us today. Thank you, God, for your care and for your love and your understanding. We appreciate, Lord, when you speak to us and share with us what we need from your word. And today we hope that as we answer and open our word up that you will speak to us and that our answer will be affirmative to you. We give you praise and glory and honor too, Lord, for the wonderful country that we have. I thank you, Lord, that you are a God who founded this nation and you brought it into existence and that you gave the framers good insights from your word to found this country and we give you praise for that. I just pray for the men and women today that are leading this country that they will listen and have that kind of heart. I pray also too, Father God, for the men and women who bravely put their lives on the line every day to keep us a free democracy. And for those who work in our streets every day and keep us free from the tyranny of selfishness that people have in our society today that shoot and kill one another. I just pray that you'll keep them all safe as they work and do diligently the work they're called to do. And to the Heavenly Father, too, we bring to you those that were shut in. We think of Dean and Bill and Evelyn and Lucille and Karen and Kay and Joyce, all those who are struggling right now that want to be here but they can't make it because of uh, being set, laid up in home. I pray for especially to those who we know that are sick. I think of Doug Isley. I pray for Judy, who's going to have surgery on her feet. For James, who's going to have a, a, a scent put into his heart tomorrow. I pray also, too, for uh, Angie and her cancer, and Samantha and her cancer, that you'll heal them. For Todd, who's getting an oblation tomorrow, that you'll watch over him and give the doctors wisdom as they do that. We pray those who are battling addictions. We pray... Um, for Ryan and Jordan and David and Rick and Eric and Mitch, these who have those on their back. I pray for also a young man, Russell, who's struggling with his alcoholism. Lord, bring them out of this bondage. I pray for Jordan too, especially as he gets out. Lord, protect him. Keep him safe and that he will follow the way, Lord, that you have showed him through this experience. And now, Father God, as we come before your word, speak to us, Lord. We want to hear from you. And through Jesus Christ, I pray this. Amen. During the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904, a guy by the name of An Arnold Falcha had put up an ice cream stand, and it was uh, unbelievable. It was hot and people wanted ice cream. The problem with him is that he ran out of bowls. and Didn't know what to do. But there was a guy next door who also was selling. His name was Ernest. Who basically wasn't have any of his waffles were being bought. And Ernest saw and looked and in the heat he rolled up his waffle. And went over and spoke to Arnold and said, hey, let's put the ice cream in here. And sure enough, today you and I, and I've appreciated many of those little waffle cones. Uh, they came, the waffle ice cream cone. Well, that partnership helped a lot. And today we're going to speak about a partnership. God and his people, as they work together for the common vision. As they leave the me and they go to we and they work together as a people of God. We've been on this journey with the children of Israel through Exodus. We've seen how they started out very blessed. They only had 70 people down in Goshen, but they were brought because Joseph basically went down and was sold into slavery. But God had taken him and used him to save the children of Israel. But then after that, things turned negative to the Israelites. And from 70 people, they grew to 22 million people. But they also wound up becoming slaves. But we know that God was using that all those 400 years to prepare them to be a strong people and to grow them. 
And that also the Pharaoh got nervous and started killing the babies. And one baby that slipped through the ranks by God's will was Moses. Not only was Moses slipped through the ranks, but Pharaoh's daughter took him under her wing, fed him, fed him through the mother, and paid the mother for it. And then also, too, gave him the greatest education he could ever have in the world of that day in Egyptian education. So much so that he was a great writer. And, of course, he wrote the first five books of the Bible, the largest part of the Bible was written by him. But he also had astronomy and all kinds of things he learned as there in that 40 years. But then he was, because of a murder that he committed, God sent him out for 40 years to take care of sheep who were dumb and, and that were very stubborn. And God was preparing him also to lead the children of Israel who were very stubborn people. And that also he was going to deal with a stubborn Pharaoh for 10 times as he put plagues on the Pharaoh and his people that he would not listen to let the people of Israel go. And finally he did. And God led the children of Israel out by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. And he led them not along the side of the Mediterranean Sea, which would have been the fastest, but would have been the most dangerous because there were many military outposts there. God took them into the middle of the desert and moved them around. And finally backed them up to this Red Sea. And the children of Israel saw after Pharaoh had changed his mind and wanted the Israelites to come back and finish the work that they did, that they panicked. And how God showed them how he provided for them as Moses lifted up his hand and split the waters. And God used them as his bait to pull the Egyptians into the sea and then drown them and keep Israel from ever having to deal with them again in that generation. And it was during that time that the children of Israel saw God's mighty work his mighty hand. But then in chapter 16, they forget so easy how God provides for them. We saw it last week in that the bitter water, and they were complaining about that. Then after the bitter water was taken care of, they had a problem with eating and food. And so God showed them how he was going to provide for them food in the morning and meat at night. And still they complained, and they didn't even do it right. And then finally today, God leads them again to Rehabim, a place where there was no water. It's interesting how God brought them back to the very place they complained about earlier because they needed to realize and finish the lesson that he wanted to teach them. They still hadn't gotten the idea that they're supposed to trust him and he'll provide for their needs. They still missed it. And so here we have it. As we all know, old habits die hard, don't they? Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey to the wilderness of sin, according to the commands of the Lord in the camp of Rephabim. And But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses, Give us to drink that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? So Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. We see here how God uses things in our past. Brings us back to them because we still don't get the lesson. How sometimes he will test us. And he'll let us go on for a while and bring us back to the same test again. In order to help us to see that we need to trust him. And what we find here is they still have a problem with trusting God. The word of God says that the word is used massa which means test, and also Meribah, which means contending or quarreling with God and with Moses. If you were to take a map of your life, and you see the crises in your life, how would that map look when you had crises in your life? How much did you trust God? Did you find yourself complaining to Him? Did you find yourself quarreling with Him? As He tested you, are you really testing God? One of the things that happens to us is sometimes we get disappointed with God because he is not letting us have what we want. Corey Tenboom once said, don't bother to give God instructions, just report for duty. But how sometimes we get that all reversed and we want to tell God what to do and how he's to lay out our lives. In Psalm 95, the Bible says, do not harden your hearts as the children in rebellion did. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, they saw my work, 
And for 40 years I was grieved with their generation and said, it is a people who goes astray with their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore that they would not enter the rest. They never made it into Canaan because they doubted God and they tested him. You ever think about what it is like to test God? I was wondering about that and I began to do some research on it and a fellow put together testing God is when we doubt his kindness that he's given to us in certain situations. We test God when we question his providence, why he's prepared certain things in our lives for us. We test God when we grumble and complain under a weight of a trial that he's put into our life. And we know and we understand this in our hearts that those trials are there to grow us, but we still grumble and complain. That's testing God. When we openly accuse him of leaving and deserting us, and this is what the children of Israel did. When we think we deserve better, that he owes us, that's testing God. Three times since they left the Red Sea, the children of Israel tested God at the waters of Meribah with the food and bread that they needed. And then now here again because there was no water. And we know God providentially appoints these circumstances in our lives for a purpose. And we sometimes ask ourselves, why God did you allow this to happen? Sometimes we haven't still learned a lesson. And sometimes we let things get to be too more important than him. Some of you know we've been going through this thing of leaving our denomination. And my old sinful nature, my human nature, every once in a while, in fact, yesterday we were having the meeting with this group for our last and final meeting. I can remember waking up Thursday night in a sweat and thinking, what if... What if they don't let us leave? God, what if they take away our land? What if? What if? Sweating, questioning, wondering, what, God, how's this all going to work out? <laughs> and then finally, I came to my senses. Isaiah 26, 3 where it said, he is in perfect peace whose mind is set on the Lord. Sometimes we have a hard time doing that, don't we? And I was laying in bed trying to calm myself and speaking to him saying, Lord, help me to trust you with this. Help me to let this go. And know that you've got it. And whatever falls, I trust you. To be able to release that. I've had three episodes since this thing started. And I finally came to the realization to letting it go. And being at peace with it. And know that he was going to take care of it. And of course, he did. And he didn't need any of my help of worrying. <laughs> or my fretting or my sweating. He had it. And yet, you know how our old nature is. We want to pick it up and worry about it some more. And what if it? And here he already had it taken care of. Scripture tells us all through our life, God is testing us from our youth. And he's doing wondrous things in our life and we just need to see his work. And as I was wrestling, I was saying to myself, Dave, how are you reacting here? He's testing you and don't doubt him. Just trust him through this. He'll get you through this. And even though you feel pressures and you feel all God's going to take care of this. He's our covenant making God who went to the cross for you and died on the cross for you. He loves you and he will provide what you need. No matter how it comes out. You see, sometimes we think it's so much bigger than it actually is. He's got it. And we need to just adjust our mind and our thinking of just giving it over to him. But I know how hard that is to let it go.
I've seen people who struggled with sin and the failure that they've made in their life. No failure is too big for God. It's not eternal. No doubt is eternal. He's a covenant-making God who's with us, who promised to be with us forever. What did he say? He said, I will never leave you. If you're a child of God, if you trust Jesus Christ, he's got you. And no matter how much unbelief you're struggling with or doubt or fear, he's saying to you, I've got you. And it's going to work out. And you see, for the children of Israel, they were looking ahead to Jesus Christ, who was God's promise to them for the future. And for us, we look in the rearview mirror and realize what he's done for us. He's wiped it all out, all our sin, all our, the things that we've done, our doubts, our fears, our unbelief. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians. He says, and you, being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven your trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that are against you, which was on the contrary to us. And as he's taken it out of the way, he's nailed it on the cross. You know, some people have a hard time trusting and believing that God does that. They struggle. I remember a little girl that lived behind us. Well, she's not little, but... When she was in high school, she never even took an aspirin for a headache. Beautiful little Catholic kid, and, and she struggled, though. Because after high school, she got a job, but she met this guy. And you know, this guy was not the best. And one night they were drinking at a bar... And they got into a fight and he ran out into a major highway and was hit and killed. She was overwhelmed with the guilt of that. And his friend who was there with her consoled her. They started dating. And she struggled with this in the back of her mind. And he said, well, why don't you try this? And one afternoon he put a needle in her arm with heroin. And she started doing heroin. From that point on, she began to dance in bars. She also became an escort in prostitution and was a heroin addict and was doing tricks so that she could get. And I remember having her over for us because she lived right behind us and having her at our house for supper sometimes. And my little son, Josh, at the time was maybe one years old and trying to convince her that you know, Jesus loved her and wanted to forgive her. She'd always say to me, Pastor Dave, you don't know what I did. Jesus could never forgive me. All the things that I've done, the people I've done, and all the terrible things I've done, how could he forgive me? And I'll never forget at the end of that 11-year run, she got close to some of the girls in our church. And they talked to her and convinced her that Jesus did forgive her. And that she could give her life to Jesus. And that she did. And her heart was changed. And it's amazing to me how she finally came to understand what God had done for her. And today she's with the Lord in heaven. Because she knew his forgiveness and she asked him into her life. You see, as we go along here, we need to understand God's work in our lives. He makes a covenant with us in Jesus Christ. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And he's with us all the time. Even when we're nervous about that surgery, even when we're nervous about something like our denomination thing this week, we went, that I had to remind myself and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to my heart, to release it into his hand, to, to trust him with it, of which he took and relieved me. 
But you see, there's enemies out there, folks. There's enemies that try to take us down. Now we have a new enemy for the Israelites. They never fought in Egypt. But their battles now are going to be out in the field, in the desert. The Amalekites, an old enemy. In fact, they were from the tribe of Esau, Jacob's brother. And they were always a thorn in the flesh. They were called profane people. People who were unreligious in how they were basically outside the temple and had no moral values. And here they were, the new enemy. And it's sad, but this is the kind of people we're on. You and I have an enemy, our old enemy self, which is the devil. We know that he's our greatest enemy. And we know that he works in the systems of this world to try to drain us down and to wear us out, to get us discouraged. Why, this past week, again, I heard of parents being left out of a board of education meeting because they were discussing something that they don't want parents to know about that they're going to teach their children. That's the system of the world. And the devil's working that. He also works in our own lives because we all have a fallen nature and a sinful nature. And there's things that we know God doesn't want us to do and sometimes we buy into them and we think they're going to bring us pleasure and happiness when in all reality God tells us they're not. And now Amalek came and fought Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of the Lord of God in my hand. One of the things that the strategy that Satan does is he'll sometimes come from behind. He'll attack our weaknesses. Think about it. This is what the Amalekites did. They saw the children of Israel going by and they attacked the people in the back because they were weak and they were tired and they went and tried to take advantage of the Israelites. And they took the weak ones. Satan does that with us. He wants to exploit your weaknesses. He wants to bring you down. And he's going to exploit any little weakness that he knows about you in order to pull you down and pull you away. That's one of his strategies. And you, as a brother and sister in Christ, know your weaknesses. Be aware of how he will attack you in those moments and in those spots of your weaknesses. How he'll try to draw you away from the crowd, from your Christian friends, and try to dissolve that so that he can get a good shot at you. And then sometimes he'll attack us when we have victory in our life. When things start going good. And it was so that Moses held up his arms and hand. And Israel prevailed. And when he let it down his hand, the Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand became heavy. So he took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on the one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. We've seen it when Satan will attack us when we have a victory. Think about it. Elijah. He was stood against 250 prophets of Baal. And then all of a sudden it turns around and he runs for his life. He's scared. We think about it when Jesus was baptized. And then right after that he goes into the desert. And he's attacked. Right after his proclamation of God about him being my beloved son. And right after that, he's thrown into the desert and temptation tries to take him down. We see that also with the four kings with Abraham. We see it with Joshua after he battles and wins at Jericho. And right after that, he becomes confident in himself rather than in the Lord. And he goes over to Ai and gets a defeat. You see, because he was confident in himself rather than the Lord. And here we see Moses prevailing and Israel prevailing in the battle. Why? Because he had people under him. People sitting underneath him. Joshua and, 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 and her holding his arms up so that when his arms were held up, that the battle was won. And when his arms began to ail, he would lose, they would start losing the battle to the uh, Amalekites. 
And you see, this is one of the most important things, folks, that we all need to understand. That we need people underneath us, supporting us, praying for us, encouraging us, interceding for us, picking us up. And, and, and as Samuel Zwamer, great missionary, said one time, he says, it's the gymnasium of the soul is when we intercede for one another and lift each other up in the everyday battles that we face. We need that. We need to be open about our vulnerabilities and ask people to, to, to lift us up and strengthen us in those times when we need faith so much stronger so that we don't give in to the world and we don't give in to the things of this world. Moses then created a banner. And the banner was a memorial to God that God was his deliverer. And that banner was great because it told the world how great God was. And that God is our banner. The Lord says to Moses, write this for a memorial book. And recount the hearing to Joshua that will utter blot out the remembrance of the Amalekites, Amalek from the under heaven. And Moses built an offer and called it the banner. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is our power. He's our banner. He's our power. And that even though the battle rages in your life, you have the banner, God. To give you the victory. And that God is our resource and power to conquer. And that one of the things that is so important is that we can admit to one another our weaknesses. And that they can pray for us so that we can have the strength to conquer. And to fight the battles that we are in. How easy it is for us to let go. And when we're lifted up in prayer, we have a shield around us. Power that emanates from us. As we were reading about a missionary. Was telling the story. About how they got surrounded. In their hut. You know, I think about missionaries now a lot more. Because my niece being over in this other country. In the, in, the, in the old eastern block. And how the stuff that they're going through right now. That we take for granted. You know. They were sick the other day and they could have even gone to a emergency med that we have right down the street if they lived in America or Wichita. And there they don't have that. <laughs> and how they live with four days without heat. Snuggled up in the bed with their one-year-old baby trying to stay warm. And how the struggle that they have. And that's why we really lift them up in prayer and in intercessory prayer. And this missionary was talking about he was surrounded by these cannibals who were ready to attack his hut. And it was interesting that a guy that he knew, a friend of his, was woke up in the middle of the night over here in the United States. And how he got on his knees at 3 o'clock in the morning and started praying for this missionary friend. He had no reason why to do that. But he got on his knees and just kept on praying and praying. Until 7 o'clock in the morning from 3. And a month later, he received a note about that very day. About his hut being surrounded and the, this cannibal tribe was going to come in and eat him and his family. And here was the same day and the same time. But they didn't. Because they felt there was these people guarding his hut. <laughs> Who do you think that was? That guarded that hut. And didn't allow those cannibals to go in. And they were afraid to approach it. It was because of the prayer of that saint over in America. And this is so important that we need to understand how much we need for each other. To pray for each other. You want to do a very interesting thing. Build yourself a prayer journal. Of the things God has you pray for. And then a year or two go back and see. What you prayed about. And what God has done for you. It will surprise you. I remember I had some books back in my library at home. These little spiral notebooks. And when I first came here I prayed and I wrote out prayers and 
I journaled about what God was doing. <laughs> and my wife has been cleaning out my office. Uh, and I saw one of those and I began to read it. And it unbelievable what God was doing. And what peace I had in reading what God had done for me. And I had totally forgot about it. It's amazing what God can do, my friends. And that's why God here is called, it's the Lord is my banner. He's the one who's our front man. He's the one who goes before us. He's the one who holds us in that we should bear witness to our children and to our friends of how God goes before us and how he covers for us and he gets us through. And you see, this is one thing that Joshua needed to hear to send to his people as they were going to take the children of Israel into the promised land after this generation dropped in the desert. And Moses wanted to make sure that they wrote it down. God wanted them to write it down so that they can remember it, so they could have the confidence as they go into the future and also as they witness to their friends. And in this third experience... Jethro was the father-in-law of Moses. And one of the things that happened with Jethro was he was a priest, a Midian. And how he was converted to the God of Israel. Because of what he saw, the Egyptians had been wiped out by the God of Israel, the great God, Yahweh. And how they sat and they praised God when Moses meets his father-in-law with his family again. And they meet up and they start praising God. And Jethro, his father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrificed to the true God. Because he saw in Moses' life what God had done. And through the children of Israel and what they had done. And God, you see, was working on him also and his family to finally understand the true God of the heaven and earth, which is Yahweh God, the banner of God that Moses had. And he got him to understand that. And he worships God. And then God has Moses' father-in-law give him a little hand. Moses was working too hard. I know that can happen sometimes with some A-type personalities that we can try too much and be everything to everybody. And in verse 13, and Jethro's watching Moses. He's trying to decide all these cases for the children of Israel as their judge. Now there's two million people in the Israelites. And some of his people are overburdened with trying to judge these cases. And so it was the next day that Moses sat at the judge with the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. He was working day and night, solving their issues. And his father-in-law sees it and says, Moses, the thing that you are doing is not good. Both you and these, those, these people will who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this is a thing to do much for you. You are not to be able to perform it by yourself. Moses had a Superman's complex here. But God had his father-in-law speak to Moses. It's here that Moses divides up chooses men who can help him make these decisions, who can decide for these people and to help support him make the changes. Because otherwise it's going to basically destroy Moses and his work. And so God does this through his father-in-law and speaks to him and gets him to change his behavior and divide up the work and be part of a great thing of helping to heal the people of God. And so he says, divide them up in groups of ten. Had them divided up in fifties and hundreds and put people over them to help them. This is the way it should be. This is the way it should be in the church. This is the way it should be in many organizations so it doesn't overburden you. And you see, what a wonderful thing that we have. This past week, you know, I told you that yesterday we were finally released 
we have to go through some legal work and stuff, but we're going to be part of the biblical Presbyterian church. It is a whole new opportunity for our church to reorganize and get ourselves together. And one of the things I'm so excited about, it's a dream that I've always had, and that is this church becomes a spiritual hospital for people. For people who are broken. People who don't know the way of life. And the darkness is around us tremendously, folks. We have friends and neighbors that are living in the darkness and they don't even realize it. But that this church becomes a spiritual hospital. And that in this spiritual hospital, like you have in most teaching hospitals, university hospitals, you have some people who are learning to be doctors, some who are learning to be physician's assistants, some of them are learning to be nurses, and all kinds of deeds in order to bring the health of the community and people healthy. And that's my prayer with this church, that we have people going out into the world and sharing the light of the gospel. And that people see in them like Moses' father-in-law saw in Moses, the real God, not the phony God, not the God of materialism, but the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who brings peace to their brokenness, to the tragedies that they share in life. We know there's a lot of brokenness out there. We know there's a lot of people looking for happiness. And they look in, as an old song of the 80s was, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And here, with Jesus Christ, we can give them that help. We can triage them and bring them to the gospel. And bring them to a new way of thinking in their lives that will help them enjoy. You see, people don't understand God is not an ogre. He's this God who really wants to, us to experience life. Jesus said it. One of my favorite verses in the Gospels it comes from John chapter 10, verse 10. And it says there, Jesus said, I have come to give you life Eternal life. But eternal life doesn't mean just going away and dying and going to heaven. It's eternal life now. And he says, I have come to, to give you life and to give it in its abundance here. And so many people are missing that. And they're giving themselves to things for their happiness that don't last and don't provide them with the true eternal life and joy and happiness that only Christ can bring. C.S. Lewis once spoke about this. I'm going to close with his illustration. He said, you know, most people are not looking for the greatest part of life. They think they are but they're second-handers. And what they're looking at in life, they think is going to give them that happiness, and it's not. But Jesus came to give us the abundant life, the greatest joys of life. And he said, it's kind of like children who you go in a ghetto, and they're down this dark alley, and they're playing in the mud. And there's all kinds of maggots and stuff they're playing with. And they're quite content of playing with the magnets. But then someone comes along and says, look, my mom and dad want to take you to the beach so you can enjoy the ocean. We can be in the sailboat. We can have all this fun by the water. And they would rather stay with the magnets, maggots because they don't know the true abundance of life that only Christ can give. 
Let's pray together. Father, I pray for each one of us here today. You've got a calling on all of our lives. We have people around us who don't understand about this abundance. We've even got family members who miss the boat. Jesus, help us in this church to build a spiritual hospital that can give young men and women and adults and all over the spectrum that they can see where the real healthy spiritual life comes from. And the joy of life comes from is from you. Help us, Jesus, to purvey that to our world. And help us, Lord, to help those who are struggling to try to find that peace in their hearts. Lord, help us be like the beggar who knows where to find the bread of life and draws our friends to it. Thank you, God, for being here today with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive the benediction, sing our closing song. Please rise. And the God who, who called the light out of darkness, shine in your hearts to bring the glory of Jesus Christ to the world that you're in. Amen. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsels guide uphold you. With his sheep securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. Till we meet. Till we meet. Till we meet. At Jesus' feet, till we meet, till we meet, God be with you till we meet again.